0: Uh, hopefully uh, this tutorial will help you learn to understand the sources of knowledge used in critical thinking and probably just about anywhere but uh, I would like to do a couple of review questions first. Which of the following kinds of language is either true or false? Take a moment. Yes, in language we say that a proposition that is informative is either true or false. It is one or the other but it cannot be both simultaneously. Which of the following kinds of language is used to influence action? Correct. Directive language influences action in the sense in which, for example, a person gives a command or a suggestion, but uh, directive language and the propositions utilized to express directive language are not themselves either true or false. What would you say to this one? Words generally have... If you guessed it, you're correct. Good for you both connotative and denotative meanings, which means that uh, there are, there's a sense of a word in which uh, you can have not only uh, certain ideas and concepts associated with the word, but at the same time you have things to which the word actually points to. In some instances it might be more hierarchical concepts to which thing the words point to, and so there's a sense of denotation there. Uh, imagine uh, denota- denotation is kind of like uh, pointing a finger at something to express the meaning of a word. Clearly not all words uh, you know, can be subject to that same procedure. New terms that are added to language as that language grows, and of course language is growing all the time, are stipulative. Stipulative means to lay down the meaning of a term. We shall stipulate that the meaning of such and such is the following. That's the way that's supposed to go, and be understood. When the term itself is on its own definition, the result is, you guessed it, a circular definition means that you're really not saying anything at all. You're just, in essence, even if it might be with slightly different wording, repeating the um, definiennes, so to speak, with the definiendum, the term to be defined, and the term doing the defining they're roughly the same thing. Circular, you're just going, sir, you don't really learn any new and exciting information, or if not exciting, at least new novel or additional information about the term to be defined in a circular definition. Terms that are deployed to clear up ambiguity in use are, normally the best uh, guess on that one would be precising definitions. Precising definitions actually literally make it clearer what the intended definition of a term or concept is. Now on with PowerPoint. To review, again, good critical thinking skills do require a sound knowledge base and we can say that knowledge is as stated here, information, possibly experience, that we think is true and for which we have justification or evidence. We say that if you know something, what it is you know, if you're using the word in a somewhat more technical manner, if you know something, what it is you know is true. In other words, what you know is a true proposition. That true proposition is ordinarily referred to as a fact. Now it could be that uh, what we think is a fact during one era or time span later turns out to be uh, a non-fact. But at least if you say you know, what it is you know you take to be true. That is to say, in our language, in critical thinking, a true proposition is what you know, if you know anything at all. Um, If we do understand how our knowledge actually is acquired, and there are several sources for the acquisition of knowledge, as well as having an awareness of the limits of our understanding, uh, we might um, be able to better do logical reasoning. Two great traditions, uh, certainly in the Western world, but I think you'll see evidence of them throughout all cultures, really, um, are rationalism and empiricism. And I think it's safe to say that uh, the way in which we look at the world uh, is typically shaped by how it is that we arrive at the truth, or what our conception of truth is, and what we think uh, you know, the sources are of knowledge. For people like the rationalists, such as the Greek philosopher Plato, um, the thought is that most human knowledge and truth derives from reason, in some uh, extreme cases purely from reason, and typically what we think of when we think of uh, purely reasoning type truths, or coming from the source of the mind, so to speak, or the logical mind, are things like mathematical and logical truth. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Clearly it's been argued many, many times that you don't really have to do anything but just kind of set and think about 2 plus 2. Once you know the meaning of plus and 2 and equals, then there's almost no other way around it. 2 plus 2 must equal 4, and uh, you don't really have to have any experience of the outside world to quote-unquote know that, certainly on a rationalist point of view. By contrast, an empiricist would claim that truth and knowledge are derived through empirical evidence, which is to say through sense experience, uh, through data, if you will, collected by our physical senses. Um, Science is probably a very good representation of that, but certainly much of what we call science is a combination package of rationalism and empiricism, I would say. Theoretical physics is, I think, largely a rationalist approach, whereas something like biology, to some extent chemistry maybe, botany, Uh, anthropology, if regarded as a science, physical anthropology, uh, is based in greater part, it can be argued, uh, on the evidence of the senses. How it is that we uh, have observed the world, what we've collected, what we put together uh, to construct a a view based upon sense experience. To bridge a gap between rationalism and empiricism, uh, the famous German philosopher Kant uh, decided to reject them both. However, in the course of his rejection of both rationalism and empiricism, he actually combined them. Kant argued that our experience of reality isn't a matter of reasoning or empirical evidence, at least not solely, but is dependent also on the structure of our minds. The way in which our mind is constructed actually contributes to the experience of reality and how it is that we approach it, understand it, and ultimately uh, live within the the world of quote-unquote reality. So in other words, we don't really see reality as it is in and of itself, but rather in terms of the way in which our brain or our mind interprets it, because our mind, Kant argued, structured uh, and processed information that comes in from the, if you will, for the sake of this presentation, outside world, if there is one. Uh, Common sense would probably suggest to you that there is something that we philosophers refer to as the outside world as distinguished from that which is within you in terms of your own inner consciousness, if you like that way of expressing it. So we'll we'll leave it alone at that, but there are some logical issues associated with positing the existence of an external world. You know, why need one? Particularly if most of what you experience is in your own consciousness. All you really need is somebody to trigger that, and as people in classes uh, that I've taught have pointed out, sounds like we're talking a little bit when we talk that way about the movie Matrix. Yes, in a way we are. It could be that uh, perhaps if uh, only consciousness is important in our experience and what we consciously are aware of, which we are experiencing, and, and, and hence is empirical in that sense. Then if you had some kind of machinery uh, that uh, triggered certain kinds of events that were associated with your experience consistently, you might ultimately be uh, deluded into thinking what you're experiencing is actually something called the outside world. This is very Kantian and to some extent Cartesian as well. Kant uh, suggested that the world could be divided into two camps, or two categories at least. One category we'll refer to as the phenomena, which comes from the Greek world, something really means to be to show through. That which appears in consciousness is phenomena and, and uh, it appears according to the forms of space and time which are in your mind. Your mind actually uh, it is constructed in such a way, according to Kant, that it can only experience the outside world in terms of the forms of space and time. So we experience the world in the manner in which our minds allow us to experience that world and it is like a filter. The filters of space and time bring the outside world into our consciousness. Now that outside world is sometimes referred to as the thing in itself, or the things in that outside world are things in themselves, meaning that they are detached, if you will, from uh, any anything else, any other consciousness. The things in themselves are not dependent upon their being, upon our thinking of them. There are other philosophical traditions that suggest that that, that is true, that uh, a thing exists because you think it, but that's not what Kant is saying. There's an outside world, things in the outside world are thinking themselves and the fancy word for that is noumena and of course that uh, derives as you might guess from the word news or mind so in in a sense a thing in itself is something out there that we construct um, and also something in and of itself that just simply exists we think uh, beyond us it's kinda commonsensical in a way again uh, hearkening back to what I said previously um, we kinda think of the world as being outside of us and things being independent of us. That sort of captures the common sense notion of noumena. Some examples of course, such as uh, the now famous uh, movie Predator. Um, Here you have a being, um, don't know what you call it other than the predator, uh, in his encounter with Arnold Schwarzenegger, clearly seems to have the upper hand, or whatever that appendage is that he would call in his language right there, over our would be hero protagonist Arnold Schwarzenegger and of course here we have a uh, image of how the uh, predator actually perceives Arnold and you'll notice that that's very different um, than the way in which a human being would perceive Arnold or anybody else Uh, perhaps this being perceives heat patterns in the infrared spectrum cannot see in our what we call our visible spectrum this is assuming of course that the laws of physics uh, are appropriate to a description of, um, of a being like that and how it perceives but for all practical intents and purposes it, it's basically a bipedal organism we're looking at with what appears to be a brain and a cranium, I mean these are probably all analogous features and it, its eyes uh, presumably connect up to a different noumena or connect up to the same noumena. But, but produce a different phenomena, and I hope that this brings the point to you. There is a noumena out there that somehow Arnold Schwarzenegger is, but you perceive him one way, the predator perceives him another way, and that's largely because of the way the predator is constructed. Now that's only at the optical, if you will, level. For all we know, maybe at the somewhat more mental or cerebral level, the uh, alien entity, represented by Predator here, actually conceives of an object or an entity like Arnold Schwarzenegger much differently. Maybe not as a separate object, but maybe more as something that kind of emerges from a background, which would be to make the Arnold noumenon into something quite uh, 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 unremovable, so to speak, from the background uh, terrain or the background imagery. If you can kind of see what I'm talking about in this, this picture, I know I know it's science fiction, but if you go with it for just a bit, it may illustrate an important point that Kant is trying to make. And that is that um, you can kind of notice here on the basis of the way in which this creature perceives Arnold, that uh, he doesn't appear to be entirely distinct from this background. That would be a very different view of the world, would laden with all sorts of metaphysical implications amongst others. Now there's some really cool allusions here and I don't like to use the word cool, but uh, it ends up that uh, the reason I'm using it is because there's a a website out there that has some really interesting optical illusions. We're going to try it for the sake of this presentation, so um, be patient if there's a bit of a hang-up here. Hopefully we'll be able to bring these cool illusions into the privacy of your own screen. That was an illusion. I don't think it was supposed to be there. That was a pop-up. Now the idea here about the Love Test illusion is if you try to look right smack dab in the middle here and concentrate this, on this area, as I'm doing right now, and hopefully you're having a similar experience, you're going to notice that something begins to change. Now, um, if you look at it for about a minute and go to that website, you'll discover that those hearts will actually begin to disappear, or should. Yep, they're beginning to go for me too. beginning to disappear. Yes, look closely at the center and some of the hearts begin to disappear. Probably different for different people, but interesting optical illusion and tends to show that because of the way in which our optical nerve centers are set up and the way in which we are just simply physically constructed, it's pretty easy to create an illusion in which quote-unquote the noumenon or noumena begin to vanish, actually. That's at least one interpretation I suppose I'd place on this phenomenon. But I hope you have a chance to kind of look it over yourself. Now, uh, with a little luck, we'll go back to our our presentation, and we'll go to this other optical illusion. See if we can bring up this uh, GIF image here. Eh, It's going to bring up uh, PaintShop Pro, and if everything works out okay, that will come up too. Now, if you just gaze upon this for a period of time, I try to gaze on the big wheel, you're going to notice that the little small wheels peripherally appear to be moving. Now this is one of those appearance reality questions that Plato certainly would famously have wanted to um, invite us to consider. Are the wheels that are, in a sense, for the sake of our presentation here, noumena, the things in themselves, are they actually moving or is it the way in which our mind and, and also our perceptual apparatus, our vision, is it the way in which our vision is constructed uh, that's causing us to think that they were moving. Now if we didn't know any better and we didn't know that this is an illusion and we found somebody with a big banner maybe placed in the hallway and you're walking down the hallway and you're looking at that uh, one big uh, off to the left here series of what appear to be a bunch of uh, rectangles black blue and yellow rectangles arranged in a certain pattern and off to the the right peripherally you actually see Uh, or seem to see, these little wheels moving, and I'm assuming you're probably seeing what I'm seeing, they move very quickly. It's a really cool optical illusion. Now, again, not knowing any better, if you didn't know it was meant to be an illusion, you might have some trouble figuring that out, don't you think? Okay, well, we're going to try to resume our little slideshow here, and let's go back to another consideration here that we're talking about with regard to the notion of flatland. Now I mentioned that in my live class actually, but um, here you can actually, if you wish, go to a YouTube video and uh, talk about uh, flatland. Uh, Flatland uh, basically is one of those little um, environments in which you have two-dimensional figures, and these two-dimensional figures, insofar as they are two-dimensional, basically can move lengthwise um, and For example, this little square could maybe circumnavigate what appears to be a sphere. But remember, they they can only move in basically two dimensions. Now, human beings, at the very least, can move in four dimensions. And what that means is length, width, and height. So so technically speaking, these flatland creatures have no height. Now think of what kind of world these these creatures live in. Think about how they would perceive the world almost simply based upon their geometry. Which again, seems to be a kind of a Kantian point. It's almost as if Kant was saying that based upon the geometry, uh, if you will, of the way in which our perceptual apparatus is constructed, and the way in which our minds interpret interpret the outside world, noumena, we see things according to the manner in which we can see them. So a two-dimensional being, for all practical intents and purposes, probably could not realize what a three-dimensional being truly is like, primarily because of the fact of the way in which it is constructed perceptually. So a very interesting point. Now if you go to this little YouTube uh, video up here, I'll give you some time. You might be able to copy and paste this um, and then go back to the actual YouTube uh, video itself. We'll give it a try here just because I like to experiment and to see if our screen capture actually works. Imagine a vast I'm sure that you get the impression of what's uh, going on there and um, what you're going to see is that it's really a very interesting concept so um, I will join you in just a moment here okay I had to take a little bit of a hiatus there because I had a visitor and uh, now we're returning hopefully there'll still be continuity with this uh, little brief presentation Um, what about uh, the uh, tremendous epic for which uh, the noted celebrity, um, Orson Welles, took a whole lot of flack and a whole lot of credit ultimately, is uh, the War of the Worlds. Um, The reason I'm introducing this at this point in time, because we are kind of talking about the manner in which uh, uh, our senses are constructed in such a way as to give us a picture of the outside world according to the way in which our senses allow us to perceive it. And to some extent, it's not only a sense perceptual issue but it's also an intellectual issue and a matter of how it is that we uh, approach the world, what our attitude is towards the world, what our perspective or paradigm is. But in uh, the War of the Worlds it turns out that uh, many many people back in the thirties were listening to this radio broadcast and uh, just on the basis of what they heard and the way in which it was presented got the distinct impression that uh, the world, certainly the United States and other places in the world, uh, had been invaded and it was based upon the HG Wells book, written about 1900, um, about uh, Martian extraterrestrials invading the Earth. Of course, there have been several remakes of that, one with Gene Kelly back in 1951, and another with, uh, of course, your friend Tom Cruise, a much more contemporary actor. Um, Very similar plot line from the book uh, to the radio broadcast to the movies. you know, they just uh, each entity that produced these uh, this episode or episodes from the book did it a little bit differently. Let's see if this comes up here. Should ah, yeah, there we go.
1: conferring with someone, can't quite see who. Ah yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes it is, now now they've parted and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now, it's a white hat tied to a pole. Flag of truce. Those creatures know what that means. Wait a minute, something's happening. Some shape is rising out of the pit and make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror, and it Not leaps right, 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 right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Oh, Lord, they are turning into flames. How ah! the head, hell you by the...
0: Alright, well I'm sure that's enough of that. I hope it spooked you. If you close your eyes while you're listening to that, uh, you can probably tell how if uh, somebody made the assumption that that was in fact an actual broadcast, it might quite horrify him. But again, that's based to some extent upon the idea that um, you're sensing and interpreting and relying upon a source of information uh, that presumably will lead to, uh, when validated, knowledge or not, or at least a strong belief. So even a way in which, as we all know today in this very sophisticated age of advertising and marketing and radio and TV and broadcasting, um, we know, because we're relatively sophisticated, that um, there are times when material is misleading that is uh, propagated throughout the airwaves. This is certainly a case in point. It caused mass hysteria, and I think that uh, the uh, voice that you heard of Orson Welles, uh, Orson Welles himself, got in some trouble for this. Let's talk a little bit about what evidence is. Evidence is something regarded as uh, that which tends to prove or disprove a particular view or claim. Um, And it's important that you consider the credibility of your sources. How do you evaluate the credibility of your sources? And then when you have a a, a really good source of information, you still have to use critical thinking and go one step further and say, well, although this is a reputable source, and because of the reputability of a source of information, whether it be an institution or an individual, uh, that may have some expertise in a certain area, uh, you still have to use critical thinking to evaluate the content of what a person asserts, even if they are an expert. Um, when we talk about a direct experience, there is uh, a, a concern about first-person perceptual reports. In other words, I see something, you see something. By the time we report it to somebody else, uh, it ends up almost looking at times as though we've saw, seen two different things. Um, Direct sense experience is not infallible, but it is, a, it is an, an important source. I mean, if somebody says they see an unidentified flying object and they have maybe drawn a picture, taken a, a photograph or something, you, you look at that and it has some credibility at first glance. Uh, you have to still examine the evidence that's provided by means of direct sensory experience, however, to ascertain whether or not it's coherent and, and in and of itself believable or credible. Certainly it's true that memories about experiences are subject to influence from a large range of, uh, of kinds of factors. Uh, suggestion, mere suggestion can change somebody's remembrance of an event, and uh, there is such a thing as discovered by psychoanalysis, uh, uh, in psychoanalysis, certainly by the famous uh, Sigmund Freud, that some people just have false memories, and that's called false memory synd- syndrome. It is suspected that uh, the Dozens and dozens of reports about uh, UFO uh, probings and uh, uh, people who have been apprehended supposedly by extraterrestrial beings from a UFO, kidnappings, uh, are likely due to false memory syndrome. A couple of uh, more points to make. Hearsay evidence um, is evidence that's normally not uh, terribly credible. It's heard by one and repeated and repeated, and as you know, uh, that can I- eventuate in an entirely different story or claim by the time several people have actually encountered hearsay evidence that have been in that loop. Anecdotal evidence, personal testimonial. Uh somewhat unreliable because of it, inaccurate memory and uh, the tendency to exaggerate and distort even if you're not deliberately attempting to do that. Uh, anecdotal evidence like the first person testimonials that you get when you see an ad, an advertisement, on TV, um, let's say, or somewhere else, about uh, what a piece of equipment will do for, for your physique, what a tablet will do for your, the growth of your hair, uh, or your overall mood, etc. When you have people that come on, up in front of the camera and tell you, yes, I took this, well, maybe, maybe they're telling the truth, but it might not necessarily work for you like it worked for them, and there may be other factors involved. We often when we're doing a paper or trying to bolster and justify a claim rely upon experts and uh, there's some things to consider when you're talking about who, is, who has expertise. Their education or training, their experience, their reputation among fellow uh, practitioners and accomplishments such as publications or some kind of notoriety uh, which itself is uh, meaningful and makes sense. If all of these things come together in a positive way you probably have an expert. Uh, When we're evaluating claims that people make, we try to be as objective as possible, that's basically what this slide is about. Uh, We want to avoid confirmation bias, which is looking for evidence that just confirms our assumptions. You know, this happens a lot with conspiracy theories. On the face of it, some conspiracy theories, you know, for example, about uh, oh uh, the Twin Tower situation, or NASA never going to the moon. On the face of it, they look credible, but that's only because what has happened, either consciously or not, on the part of the people who advertise conspiracy theories or or make those kinds of claims associated with conspiracy theories, is that they end up only um, finding information and events and reports that confirm and ignore that which would disconfirm. As a critical thinker, you need to consciously develop strategies, we all do. Uh, need to do this that compel us to examine the evidence uh, that which confirms our view and also that which might disconfirm our view so it's always good to look for contradiction I'll mention more about how you can use that concept when you're writing a paper called preparing the opposing point of view uh, as you write your paper pick out the very best opposite point of view to your own and then show logically why it doesn't work, and that could help to strengthen your point of view. When you want to uh, actually increase your knowledge, it probably is something that you already know. You've got to do good research. Don't go to Wikipedia uh, much, if at all, but if you do, I do it sometimes. Uh, it's, a, it's tempting to do so. It's, it's a very convenient uh, web-based source of some information, but shouldn't be the completely reliable source. You should use it as a not a litmus test but as a springboard to go on to do further research so uh, when you're trying to find sources for what you want to write about or claim you want to make a position that you want to uh, advertise take a look at expert interviews take a look at dictionaries and encyclopedias look at library catalogs scholarly journals government documents internet sites and then try to take accurate notes sometimes a little digital recorder is helpful but I tend to have mixed feelings about every single thing that a human being does, as being on a digital recording device, uh, video or audio or both, and then ending up on the internet or on YouTube. Um, Cognitive and social factors uh, are quite important, and uh, indeed, uh, sometimes what happens is that uh, we have errors that are due due to just simply some kind of an issue going on neurologically. Uh, but uh, indeed they can be parsed into cognitive and perceptual errors. Uh, Perceptual errors uh, certainly can have to do with just uh, making a mistake about what you see, and uh, then of course uh, what the mind sometimes does, neurologically so to speak, is fill in missing bits and pieces of information. It's a very good movie, Um, I'll try to put it up online, uh, hopefully I can get a copyright secure uh, security for that. It's called uh, uh, The Future, Studying the Future, and it's by a gentleman named Joel Barker. And it's about a concept called paradigms, and uh, I will devote one of our sessions to an understanding what a paradigm is. But uh, this movie illustrates extremely well. It's about 30 minutes long. Um, extremely well what happens when a person has a very stable paradigm about the way reality is supposed to be or about what they're supposed to be seeing and how they actually unconsciously bend information that is taken in through uh, sensory windows so to speak of your your uh, physical being um, through your perceptual apparatus and uh, this information is distorted and bent to fit a kind of paradigm or a pre Disposition to have a view about how the world is or uh, what a state of affairs or events is—it's a very interesting notion. Again, Joel Barker, uh, a study about paradigms. Is this a duck or is it a rabbit? I know that there's been some controversy about this. If you if you see both things simultaneously, I'm okay with it. But usually, if you're trying to see a rabbit, you make that uh, what would be the duck bill. Uh, into rabbit ears, and if you're trying to see a duck, that becomes a duck bill, and uh, there are many people who who really take a while to see the old woman or the young woman. Uh, What I've discovered is that uh, many people seem to see the young woman first, but then when you realize that the young woman is characterized in all these pictures by this kind of almost silhouette view of her youngish looking contours of her face, then when you try to see the old woman and you finally realize in a gestalt shift of your perception that yeah this could be kind of an old woman with a kind of a hook nose, an eyeball here, and a mouth. Some of you may have seen that first and then saw the young woman. Of course the psychologist probably uh, will say but you can't see them both simultaneously together because they're actually two distinct and contrary things. But I will not argue that somebody might be able to see them simultaneously that way. Um, social norms, expectations clearly exert a strong influence, you know, the region in which we're born, the country in which we're born, the politics, all of those things. This is why we actually have such a, a, a almost seeming chasm now uh, between the, the uh, uh, houses of Congress, for example. People can't, can't cross the aisle. They're either liberal or they're conservative, democrat or republican. Maybe there's a third party out there of independent thinkers, but uh, that's clearly a case in which people... Uh, experience the world and see the world in terms of the influences that have been placed upon them or they've come under just by their political party. Think about how much stronger it would be in terms of religion or family or uh, friends or school where you go to or tribe a city even I suppose could be. Basic conclusion, clearly knowledge is a crucial component of effective uh, critical thinking, but we have to take a look at where the knowledge comes from both in terms, uh, you know, from a philosophical point of view, of how it is that uh, we are constructed to receive data and information from the quote-unquote outside world, but also in terms of how we reason about it. And um, it's clear that we can be mistaken, and I'm the first to confess that I have made many mistakes, perceptually and otherwise. I'm sure if you reflect on it and you're honest, you'll realize that you probably have too. It's normal for people to we just simply need to be aware of limitations such as this and uh, when we do our research try to do it objectively try to be somewhat scientific try to be open-minded and try to look at contradictory evidence that's the hard part try to look at a view which contradicts your own that's very difficult to do it's almost a spiritual exercise thank you very much for joining me hope this has been of some value to you okay I had to take a little bit of a hiatus there because I had a visitor and uh, now we're returning hopefully there'll still be continuity with this uh, little brief presentation Um, what about uh, the uh, tremendous epic for which uh, the noted celebrity um, Orson Welles took a whole lot of flack and a whole lot of credit? Ultimately, is uh, the War of the Worlds? Um, the reason I'm introducing this at this point in time because we are kind of talking about the manner in which uh, uh, our senses are constructed in such a way as to give us a picture of the outside world according to the way in which our senses allow us to perceive it, and to some extent, it's not only a sense perceptual issue but it's also an intellectual issue and a matter of how it is that we uh, approach the world, what our attitude is towards the world, what our perspective or paradigm is. But in uh, the War of the Worlds it turns out that uh, many many people back in the thirties were listening to this radio broadcast and uh, just on the basis of what they heard and the way in which it was presented got the distinct impression that uh, the world, certainly the United States and other places in the world uh, had been invaded and it was based upon the H.G. Wells book, written about 1900, um, about uh, Martian extraterrestrials invading the Earth. Of course, there have been several remakes of that, one with Gene Kelly back in 1951, and another with, uh, of course, your friend Tom Cruise, a much more contemporary actor. Um, Very similar plot line from the book uh, to the radio broadcast to the movies. you know, they just uh, each entity that produced these uh, this episode or episodes from the book did it a little bit differently. Let's see if this comes up here. Should ah, yeah, there we go.
1: Conferring with someone. can't quite see who. Ah oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted and the professor moves around one side studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. Hey, I can see it now. It's a white hat tied to a pole. Flag of truce. Those preachers know what that means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. Some shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror that leaps right, 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 right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Oh, Lord, they're turning into flames. How the hell do you call by the.
0: All right, well I'm sure that's enough of that. I hope it spooked you. If you close your eyes while you're listening to that, uh, <clears throat> you can probably tell how if uh, somebody made the assumption that that was in fact an actual broadcast, it might quite horrify him. But again, that's based to some extent upon the idea that um, you're sensing and interpreting and relying upon a source of information uh, that presumably will lead to, uh, when validated, knowledge or not, or at least a strong belief. So even a way in which, as we all know today in this uh, uh, very sophisticated age of advertising and marketing and radio and TV and broadcasting, um, we know because we're relatively sophisticated that um, there are times when material is misleading that is uh, propagated throughout the airwaves. This is certainly a case in point. It caused mass hysteria and I think that uh, the uh, voice that you heard of Orson Welles, uh, Orson Welles himself got in some trouble for this. Let's talk a little bit about what evidence is. Evidence is something regarded as uh, that which tends to prove or disprove a particular view or claim. Um, And it's important that you consider the credibility of your sources. How do you evaluate the credibility of your sources? And then when you have a a, a really good source of information, you still have to use critical thinking and go one step further and say, well, although this is a reputable source, and because of the reputability of the source of information, whether it be an institution or an individual, uh, that may have some expertise in a certain area, uh, you still have to use critical thinking to evaluate the content of what a person asserts, even if they are an expert. Um, when we talk about a direct experience, there is uh, a, a concern about first person perceptual reports. In other words, I see something, you see something, by the time we report it to somebody else, uh, it ends up almost looking at times as though we've saw, seen two different things. Um, Direct sense experience is not infallible, but it is, a, it is an, an important source. I mean, if somebody says they see an unidentified flying object and they have maybe drawn a picture, taken a, a photograph or something, you, you look at that and it has some credibility at first glance. Uh, you have to still examine the evidence that's provided by means of direct sensory experience, however, to ascertain whether or not it's coherent and, and in and of itself believable or credible. Certainly it's true that memories about experiences are subject to influence from a large range of of kinds of factors. Uh, Suggestion, mere suggestion can change somebody's remembrance of an event. And uh, there is such a thing as discovered by uh, psychoanalysis, in psychoanalysis, certainly by the famous uh, Sigmund Freud, that some people just have false memories. And that's called false memory syndrome. It is suspected that uh, the Dozens and dozens of reports about uh, UFO uh, probings and uh, uh, people who have been apprehended supposedly by extraterrestrial beings from a UFO, kidnappings, uh, are likely due to false memory syndrome. A couple of uh, more points to make, hearsay evidence um, is evidence which normally not uh, terribly credible. It's heard by one and repeated and repeated and as you know. uh, that can I- eventuate in an entirely different story or claim by the time several people have actually encountered hearsay evidence that have been in that loop. Anecdotal evidence, personal testimonial. Uh, somewhat unreliable because of it, inaccurate memory and uh, the tendency to exaggerate and distort even if you're not deliberately attempting to do that. Uh, anecdotal evidence like the first person testimonials that you get when you see an ad, an advertisement, on TV, um, let's say, or somewhere else about uh, what a piece of equipment will do for, for your physique, what a tablet will do for your, the growth of your hair, uh, or your overall mood, etc. When you have people that come on, up in front of the camera and tell you, yes, I took this, well, maybe, maybe they're telling the truth, but it might not necessarily work for you like it worked for them, and there may be other factors involved. we often when we're doing a paper or trying to bolster and justify a claim rely upon experts and uh, there's some things to consider when you're talking about who, is, who has expertise their education or training their experience their reputation among fellow uh, practitioners and accomplishments such as publications or some kind of notoriety uh, which itself is uh, meaningful and makes sense if all of these things come together in a positive way you probably have an expert Uh, When we're evaluating claims that people make, we try to be as objective as possible. That's basically what this slide is about. Uh, We want to avoid confirmation bias, which is looking for evidence that just confirms our assumptions. You know, this happens a lot with conspiracy theories. On the face of it, some conspiracy theories, you know, for example, about, uh, oh, uh, the Twin Tower situation, or NASA never going to the moon. Um... On the face of it, they look credible, but that's only because what has happened, either consciously or not, on the part of the people who advertise conspiracy theories or or make those kinds of claims associated with conspiracy theories, is that they end up only um, finding information and events and reports that confirm and ignore that which would disconfirm. As a critical thinker, you need to consciously develop strategies, we all do. Uh, need to do this, that compel us to examine the evidence, uh, that which confirms our view, and also that which might disconfirm our view. So it's always good to look for contradiction. I'll mention more about how you can use that concept when you're writing a paper called preparing the opposing point of view uh, as you write your paper. Pick out the very best opposite point of view to your own and then show logically why it doesn't work and that could help to strengthen your point of view. When you want to uh, actually increase your knowledge it probably is something that you already know you've got to do good research don't go to Wikipedia uh, much if at all but if you do I do it sometimes Uh, it's it's tempting to do so it's it's a very convenient uh, web-based source of some information but shouldn't be the completely reliable source you should use it as a not a litmus test but as a springboard to go on to do further research so uh, when you're trying to find sources for what you want to write about or claim you want to make a position that you want to uh, advertise take a look at expert interviews take a look at dictionaries and encyclopedias look at library catalogs scholarly journals government documents internet sites and then try to take accurate notes sometimes a little digital recorder is helpful but I tend to have mixed feelings about every single thing that a human being does as being on a digital recording device uh, video or audio or both and then ending up on the Internet or on YouTube. Um, Cognitive and social factors uh, are quite important and uh, indeed uh, sometimes what happens is that uh, we have errors that are due due to just simply some kind of an issue going on neurologically. Uh, But uh, indeed they can be parsed into cognitive and perceptual errors. Uh, Perceptual errors uh, certainly can have to do with just uh, making a mistake about what you see. And uh, then of course uh, what the mind sometimes does, neurologically so to speak, is fill in missing bits and pieces of information. It's a very good movie, Um, I'll try to put it up online. Uh, Hopefully I can get a copyright secure uh, security for that. It's called uh, uh, The Future, Studying the Future. And it's by a gentleman named Joel Barker. And it's about a concept called paradigms. And uh, I will devote one of our sessions to an understanding what a paradigm is. But uh, this movie illustrates extremely well. It's about 30 minutes long. Um, Extremely well what happens when a person has a very stable paradigm about the way reality is supposed to be or about what they're supposed to be seeing and how they actually unconsciously bend information that is taken in through uh, sens- sensory windows so to speak of your, your uh, physical being um, through your perceptual apparatus and uh, it, this information is distorted and bent to fit a kind of paradigm or a predisposition to have a view about how the world is or uh, what a state of affairs or events is—it's very interesting notion. Again, Joel Barker, a uh, study about paradigms. Is this a duck or is it a rabbit? I know that there's been some controversy about this. If you if you see both things simultaneously, I'm okay with it. But usually, if you're trying to see a rabbit, you make that uh, what would be the duck bill um, into rabbit ears, and if you're trying to see a duck, that becomes a duck bill and uh, there are many people who, who really take a while to see the old woman or the young woman. Uh, what I've discovered is that uh, many people seem to see the young woman first, but then when you realize that the young woman is characterized in all these pictures by this kind of almost silhouette view of her youngish looking contours of her face, then when you try to see the old woman and you finally realize in a gestalt shift of your perception that Yeah, this could be kind of an old woman with a kind of a hook nose, an eyeball here, and a mouth. Some of you may have seen that first and then saw the young woman. Of course, the psychologist probably uh, will say, but you can't see them both simultaneously together because they're actually two distinct and contrary things. But I will not argue that somebody might be able to see them simultaneously that way. Um, social norms, expectations clearly exert a strong influence, you know, the region in which we're born, the country in which we're born, the politics, all of those things. This is why we actually have such a, a, a almost seeming chasm now uh, between the, the uh, uh, Houses of Congress, for example. People can't, can't cross the aisle. They're either liberal or they're conservative, Democrat or Republican. Maybe there's a third party out there of independent thinkers, but uh, that's clearly a case in which people, Uh, experience the world and see the world in terms of the influences that have been placed upon them or they've come under just by their political party. Think about how much stronger it would be in terms of religion or family or uh, friends or school where you go to or tribe city even I suppose could be. Basic conclusion, clearly knowledge is a crucial component of effective uh, critical thinking, but we have to take a look at where the knowledge comes from both in terms, of, you know, from a philosophical point of view of how it is that we are constructed to receive data and information from the quote-unquote outside world, but also in terms of how we reason about it, and um, it's clear that we can be mistaken, and I'm the first to confess that I have made many mistakes, perceptually and otherwise. I'm sure if you reflect on it and you're honest, you'll realize that you probably have too. It's normal for people to. We just simply need to be aware of limitations such as this, and uh, when we do our research, try to do it objectively, try to be somewhat scientific, try to be open-minded, and try to look at contradictory evidence. That's the hard part. Try to look at a view which contradicts your own. That's very difficult to do. It's almost a spiritual exercise. Thank you very much for joining me. Hope this has been of some value to you.